Dr. William Osler is considered the father of modern medicine. One of his most famous quotes was, The good physician treats the disease, but the greater physician treats the patient who has the disease. Well, that's our motto, and that's why we're here. This is Clinical Pearls. There are three separate conditions that can happen during the practice of obstetrics that once you experience, just one of them will make you, well, want to stop doing obstetrics. And of course, over the period of 20 years, I've had all three. Look, each one is horribly traumatic, obviously for the patient and her family, but also for the provider. These three conditions are shoulder dystocia, maternal eclampsia, and of course, postpartum hemorrhage. One of the hardest things to deal with that causes postpartum hemorrhage is placenta accreta spectrum disorders. That's why in this podcast, we're going to cover the way to try to prepare ourselves for this condition so it just doesn't blindside us when we're in the OR and we find a deeply invading placenta. Because the truth is, there are some things that we can do antepartum during pregnancy to try to find this. Now, in this podcast, we're going to review the January 2021, yeah, not January 2022, but January 2021 bulletin from the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine covering the ultrasonographic evaluation of signs or markers of placenta accreta spectrum disorder. Now, the reason that we're covering this, even though it was released last year, January 2021, is because it's in the January 2022 list of articles for the American Board of OBGYN. So we're going to cover, once again, the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine's Ultrasound Marker Task Force on their consensus for what to look for as you try to rule out placenta accreta spectrum disorders using ultrasound. Placenta accreta spectrum is just that. It's a spectrum or a range of abnormal adherence of the placenta to the myometrial tissue. It can include terms like placenta accreta, increta, percreta, the morbidly adherent placenta, or invasive placentation. There have been a dramatic rise in the incidence of placenta accreta spectrum over recent years, and most attribute that rise to the rise in increasing cesarean sections. PAS is associated with a marked increase in maternal morbidity and mortality. Now, this extra morbidity is primarily related to massive hemorrhage. So remember that for the MOC. It's a massive hemorrhage issue along with the associated organ damage that goes with it, cesarean hysterectomy, and the need for critical care resources. Of course, there's a pile of literature that's been previously published on ultrasound markers that can be used to try to predict placenta accreta spectrum issues. However, a lot of these different articles have a lot of different terms, and that's why the SMFM put this bulletin together. In response to this need to have a standardized way of defining these PAS sonographic markers and to have a uniform approach for the ultrasound evaluation of this condition, the Society of Maternal Fetal Medicine convened a task force with the goal of assessing PAS ultrasonographic markers on the basis of the available data and expert consensus opinions. 
I think this bulletin is remarkable because of all of the different professional societies and agencies that contributed to this. I mean, we're talking about the American Institute of Ultrasound and Medicine, the American College of OBGYN, the American College of Radiology, the International Society of Ultrasound in Obstetrics and Gynecology, the Society of Radiologists in Ultrasound, and the list of others all came together through the SMFM to help draft these recommendations. Well, let's get right into it. The ultrasound marker with the strongest association with placental accreta spectrum, or PAS, is a persistent placenta previa at the time of delivery in the setting of previous cesarean delivery. Other classic ultrasound markers of PAS include the presence of placental lacunae, loss of the retroplacental hypoechoic zone, thinning of the retroplacental myometrium, and hypervascularity of the uterovesicle or retroperitoneal space. Other sonographic markers includes the extension of placental tissue into the uterus or bladder and placental bridging vessels, the presence of excessive color Doppler flow in the retroplacental space, along with abnormal placental bridging vessels, has also been associated with PAS. Now, we're going to talk about each one of these in a little bit more detail as we go in the podcast, but that's just a quick summary. Now, something that's relatively new in the PAS ultrasound literature is its evaluation in the first trimester. I mean, typically, right, this was done in the second and, of course, third trimester, but you can actually get some clues even in the first trimester. Several PAS ultrasound markers have been described in the first trimester. In a patient with a previous cesarean delivery, implantation of a gestational sac in the lower uterine segment on ultrasound that's early in the first trimester is one of the most common markers for PAS in the first trimester. All right, now you may want to remember this for the MOC. In a recent systematic review and meta-analysis that looked at first trimester detection of PAS in high-risk women, a gestational sac implanted in close proximity to a uterine scar was identified in 82% of women with later confirmed PAS. However, the overall sensitivity of this finding in that same analysis was found to be only 44%. So this highlights the limitations of assessing the risk in the first trimester. So it's a good marker, but definitely something you need to follow up because remember, the overall sensitivity of where this gestational sac implants in relation to a C-section scar is only about 44% for confirmed PAS later on. Okay, when we come back, let's take a look at second and third trimester ultrasound markers. The presence of placental lacunae has been commonly reported in association with PAS. Remember that lacunae are basically little fluid pockets or little lakes. Others have defined this in different grades like grade 1, grade 2, or up to grade 3. Grade 1 lacunae usually includes about 1 to 3 small lacunae, and grade 2 is about 4 to 6 larger lacunae that have irregular shapes. Grade 3 lacunae are placentas with many large and bizarre appearing or irregularly shaped lacunae. Now here's a clinical pearl. Grade 3 lacunae should raise a high degree of concern for PAS. 
Yang et al. investigated the association of lacunae with maternal complications in 51 pregnancies that were at risk for PAS. These included previous cesarean delivery and they had a persistent placenta previa. So in that situation, the authors found that the need for cesarean hysterectomy and maternal complications positively correlated with the number of lacunae. So in summary, here's some high-risk factors for placental lacunae that if you see these, increase the risk for PAS. The first is multiple lacunae, defined as three or more being visible, that's a flag. Also, if they're large size, if they have irregular borders, or if they have high-velocity flow or turbulent flow within them, all of those raises the risk of placenta accreta spectrum. And remember this, the absence of lacunae in pregnancies with placenta previa and previous cesarean delivery is a reassuring sign with negative predictive values that range from 88 to 100% regarding PAS. So that's really good news. So if there's a placenta previa and a previous cesarean section patient, the absence of lacunae is key with a negative predictive value that goes up to 100%. And we're moving on to specific markers at the uterovesical interface. Remember, that's a space between the bladder and the uterus. One of the things that's been published in the past is this hypervascularity or bladder varicosities in that space. But the problem is that bladder varicosities, because of the normal anatomical changes in hyperemia of pregnancy, Bladder varicosities can often be seen in the absence of PAS, and they can also be seen in the setting of placenta previa. So it's not really clear how this actually helps because they really doesn't have... Now let's take a look at another marker that includes the uterovesical interface. Remember, that's the space between the bladder and the uterus. Well, one of the things that's been published in the past is hypervascularity in that space. The problem is it's not really specific or one condition over the other. For example, bladder varicosities are often seen in the absence of PAS, and it can also be seen in the presence of placenta previa. So it's not very clear how this actually helps with PAS because it's very nonspecific. Another ultrasound marker that's been published is the placental bulge. What the heck is that? Well, the placental bulge is described as deviation of the uterine serosa away from the expected plane, changing the uterine contour. In other words, just visualize this. If the placenta is invading into the lower uterine segment, it's going to bulge out or make that serosa more convex. You may want to remember this for the MOC. In a small study comparing ultrasound and MRI features that may predict placental invasion, the placental bulge was found to have a specificity of 88%, highlighting this marker as a reassuring sign when it's absent. An exophytic mass represents a protrusion of placental tissue outside the uterus and is diagnostic of placenta percreta when it's seen. So, the absence of this placental bulge is very reassuring because it carries an 80 to 100% specificity for not having PAS. 
That's why the SMFM makes the point that there's all these sporadic markers out there, right? There's the placental bulge, hypervascularity, bridging vessels. But when ultrasound markers are used in combination, then their performance improves substantially and can have higher sensitivity rates and higher specificity. So remember, it's not just about one marker, even though some have more importance than others, but the combination of markers that actually adds value into this diagnostic workup for PA. Yes. Podcast family, let's start wrapping this up. So the SMFM does have some general approaches and some recommendations for this workup. We've already talked about those markers. Now, what do we do about that? Well, here's some general considerations. The SMFM recommends starting the assessment with transabdominal imaging to obtain an overview of placental location and to start the assessment of regions of concerns. Remember that the first thing to start with is an MRI or some other real detailed issue like color Doppler. Just start off with transabdominal imaging because that's also what's going to be important to remember for the MOC. Now, before we talk about the ultrasound eval in the second and third trimester, which is when most people do it, the first trimester isn't immune here either. We can do some eval in the first trimester. Remember, we talked about where that sac is in relation to a previous C-section scar or the lower uterine segment. SMFM states that after 10 weeks of gestation, color Doppler can be used to assess for the presence of hypervascularity and for lacunae. Now, when possible, color Doppler should be limited just to the placental region. Try not to put Doppler on the fetus because we don't want to give the ultrasound waves uh, any extra chance to kind of distort or heat up fetal tissue. I know it's theoretical, but again, try not to put excess Doppler over the fetus if we can. Now, remember, we're not talking about really diagnosing this in the first trimester. First trimester just kind of starts the stage or sets the stage for further evaluations because you can actually start your suspicion then. But then most of the evaluation is focused on the second and third trimester with that transabdominal survey that you do first. Okay, so you've done transabdominal ultrasound and you're kind of concerned. That's where transvaginal ultrasound also has a role. TV ultrasound or transvaginal ultrasound is strongly recommended for the assessment of PAS. Transvaginal imaging optimizes resolution and allows for a detailed assessment of the lower uterine segment. It also helps look at the posterior bladder wall as well as the cervix. Now, the bladder should be partially filled in order to allow this diagnostic window so you can also separate where the bladder is and where the lower uterine segment begins. Color Doppler should be utilized to assess for vascularity and placental extension into the uterine wall and the surrounding structures. Here's where this issue of bridging vessels that you're really going to see in the second and third trimesters really comes in. Bridging vessels are defined as vessels seen on color Doppler that extend from the placenta across the myometrium and or beyond the uterine serosa. This has been considered as one of the classic markers of PAS over the years, but has really lacked consistency in its definitions. Now, these are typically seen running perpendicular to the long axis of the uterus, and these bridging vessels are often associated with the presence of a placental bulge with placental tissue extending beyond the uterine serosa. Now, here's the clinical pearl. Unlike other markers that can often be seen in cases without PAS, this marker, bridging vessels, is rarely seen in cases without PAS. So if you see it, it should be pretty darn concerning. 
Well, as we get to the end of this review, here's something to keep in mind. Why did SMFM even do this? Why do they call all these different organizations, all these different societies? Why do they get their opinion and why do they draft this? Well, here it is. The task force assembled by SMFM with representation from multiple societies and organizations was done in order to provide a standardized definition for PAS ultrasound markers and provide a standardized approach to the ultrasonographic examination in pregnancies at risk for PAS. Do you get that? So short answer is to unify definitions and provide a standardized approach to the ultrasound evaluation for PAS. We cannot end the podcast without talking about the gaps in the data, the, the unknowns that are still out there. It's important to note that many of the markers presented in this review have been studied in women with previous cesarean deliveries who also have placenta previa. In women without these risk factors, the markers are seen often and typically in the absence of PAS. That's why you have to know the population that you're studying. It really means more to have these markers in the highest risk population, which is previous cesarean sections, as well as a placenta previa. And if they don't have that history, well, it's unclear what those findings actually mean. They may just be a normal variant. SMFM ends the report with stating just some more unknowns. Again, we just don't have data. We just don't understand what these things mean. Like, how do we actually define high systolic flow in a lacunae? I don't know. That hasn't been published. Also, some have mentioned that placental thickness potentially is a protective marker. The truth is, there's no significance of increased placental thickness as it relates to this. As far as we know, we don't have that data yet. We don't know what that significance is. Also, we're not sure if 3D ultrasound helps determine penetration or placental volume or exophytic masses any more than 2D. And there actually is a gap in data regarding the role of MRI in the evaluation of PAS. I know there's been articles that have looked at this and have looked at MRI and T1 and T2 weighted to see invasion. But the truth is, there's a lot of gaps in that data. And we're not sure if that's any better than just regular old ultrasound, which is the one that's recommended by SMFM. Well, podcast family, we are done. We have reviewed the SMFM special report looking at ultrasound markers for PAS. Remember, this is also part of the American Board of OBGYN's Maintenance of Certification article list for January 2022. Yep, it's part of the MOC. As always, we're thankful for you and we're glad that you're part of our listening family. We'll see you next time on Clinical Pearls.